0: So this is one of my favorite psalms. Uh, Introduced to it uh, when I was a a new seminarian at Mount Angel. I did my pre-theology there, uh, meaning that I had a college degree, but it wasn't in Catholic philosophy. So I had to do an entire philosophy degree in two years. And yes, it made my brain hurt. That's too much philosophy to do in that short a time. But what I came to know and love about this psalm is, as I talked about it with some of my other pre-theology seminarians, and we were just captured by the introduction to it. All you peoples, clap your hand. How can you not clap your hand when you hear that? And to sing and shout for joy, and with trumpet blast, herald Christ. We had a trumpet player in our group. We had several of us singers. and We wondered what would happen if, as we all gathered to pray in our chapel with the entire seminary, and this came along, we were to clap our hands, sing the next line in joy, and have our fellow trumpeter do a trumpet blast. We were never brave enough to do that, but the four or five of us would sit in our little row together and when this came along, all you peoples, clap your hand. We'd always do a polite golf clap to get along with that. Now, there's another tradition at Mount Angel uh, with, this, with the psalms, and it happens on Saturday evening prayer, uh, where the last line or two of the third psalm is in all capitals. Every letter is a capital, capital letter. And we all know from being on the internet, writing emails, when everything is all capitals, all caps, it means that you were shouting. And so when we came to that line, we would raise our voices as an entire seminary and community shouting the joy of Christ. Well, when I went to Rome, only a few of us did that. And we did it the one time, and an email quickly went out to the entire seminary community. Even though it's in all capitals, we don't shout this line. But I've always politely done my golf clap. at all you peoples clap your hand. And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to that. What I want to talk about are some of the readings right now. What St. Luke is completing here is his depiction of Jesus in terms of the persecuted prophet, specifically Elijah, the persecuted prophet of the second book of Kings. Jesus, having escaped the clutches of his enemies by rising from the dead, now makes an Elijah-like ascent to heaven. In biblical language and imagery, this signals the truth that the one who had been crucified on trumped-up charges of being a political messiah, a rebel against Rome, and who God raised from the dead to vindicate his true messianic status, has now entered messianic glory at God's right hand. He's ascended to the throne in heaven. He has indeed been removed from human sight to commence a reign in heaven. But this does not mean an abandonment of either the disciples or his saving mission in the world. On the contrary, through the Spirit, he will be present and active in a new mode of being. The disciples had felt the power of the Spirit that was upon him during his earthly life. Now they are assured that as a result of his enthronement, they will be clothed with the power from on high, meaning that his Spirit will come down on them and accompany them as they take his word and witness to the ends of the earth." Just before Jesus departs, the disciples voice an understandable concern. Lord, has the time come? Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Here we seem to have the last flicker of hope that Jesus would be a Messiah along the lines of conventional messianic expectation. Also present, is a strong sense of unfinished business. Jesus may be the Messiah, but neither now nor in the foreseeable future do the times and conditions look particularly messianic. It's the same old world. It's the same old patterns of violence, suffering, injustice, and death. Jesus does not give a direct answer to the disciples' inquiry. The time of the kingdom's full arrival and the completion of the messianic program remain shrouded in the mystery of God, no matter what other human beings might tell us. What the disciples must understand is that, empowered by the Spirit, They are to become the instruments of its realization in the new era, the new era that is the Church that lies ahead. Through their hands and feet and mouth, and by extension our hands, our feet and mouths, Jesus will continue his messianic work until the end of time. The conflict he faced will be their conflict, too. And for some of us, our conflict as well. This is something that the Acts of the Apostles abundantly demonstrates. But in all their trials and labors, he will be with them, inspiring and guiding their work from heaven through the Spirit. Much the same idea is communicated by the passage from Ephesians it portrays the raising of christ from the dead and his enthronement at god's right hand as one continuous exercise of divine power involving a triumph over all powers hostile to god in god's plan for human beings and the cosmos as a whole christ has been placed above all these powers not simply in a physical sense but in a way that involves their subjugation. The text speaks as though this is something already achieved, but of course, as we just noted in our previous comments from the first reading, the forces hostile to God and to humanity have by no means been fully overcome. The messianic program has yet to run its course. Putting it all in the past, as though already achieved, is simply the text way of projecting an act of hope. The hostile forces may still be around, but the paschal victory of Jesus' death has dealt them a fatal blow. In the same letter, Paul addresses the issue of the hostile forces of the world when he begs the Ephesians. Do not let the hardships I go through on your account make you waver. And when we are faced with hardships, or see others facing them, we too should not waver. By our baptism and confirmation, we are clothed in the power of the Spirit. And through this Spirit, Christ lives in our hearts. And when Christ lives in our hearts, We are bold enough to approach God in complete confidence and are filled with the utter fullness of God. God's favor has been bestowed on each of us. His power, working in us, can do infinitely more than we can ask for or imagine. In this way, our faith helps us to grow in hope so that we can survive these hostile forces and hardships as we prepare for the return of Christ our Savior. Now it is a rare thing to speak so much of the first readings and to leave so little time to comment on the gospel, but I do wanna make at least one comment. I do find it interesting how the synoptic gospels accounts build on each other In Mark's account, he just says that the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that accompanied it. Luke emphasizes that they will be clothed with power from on high, that is, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew's version, he now adds this great promise, I am with you always, yes, to the end of time. He is with us, always. This can be a real help against loneliness and our modern situation of social distancing. Being alone is not the same as being lonely. One can feel lonely in a crowded street. Or alternatively, like Cicero, never less alone than when alone. This applies especially to those who believe the promise, I am with you always. Talking with him doesn't even need words. If we are open to his presence in our heart and treasure it, we can experience fully the joy of the gospel, so warmly described for us by Pope Francis. With this joy... We can be bold enough to approach God in complete confidence and know that we are his adopted sons and daughters. Ultimately, Matthew's gospel ends as it began, with the promise that Jesus was Emmanuel and will continue to be Emmanuel, God with us for all eternity, for all time. And I take great comfort in that. And that is why I am always ready to clap my hands and cry to God with shouts of joy whenever this psalm asks me to.